So it's good to be with you this morning. I'm just going to give you a little, uh, just sort of a little, start off with a little story um, about my, uh, I guess, younger years. Um, so uh, I was born a third generation ELCA Lutheran on my mother's side. It's very important, like when you talk about Lutheranism or Presbyterian, you got you got to say what kind, right? You know, if someone says Presbyterian, that means nothing to me. I need to know PCA, EPC, PCUSA. I mean, what are you? Like Presbyterian, the same thing with Lutheranism. Uh, my, my mother and grandmother were the most devout. Uh, my father stopped going, you know, when I was around second grade or third grade. Um, he'll, he'll still go occasionally. Um, he did still run the softball team. for, So that was good. Sort of kept him in... Aged. Um, good man, though. Good man. He'll go every now and then. Um, my siblings and I, though, much to the consternation of my mother, we, we never really got into church so much. Like, she really wanted us to be involved, and it sort of pained her that we just sort of looked at it as an extracurricular activity. Like, we went every Sunday. We went on Sunday, like, we were in the handbell choir, and we'd go to youth group things, and, but... We just weren't engaged like she'd want us to. Yet still, you know, I, I picked up some really great training. Uh, my mom taught me to pray, um, you know, every morning, every night. And also, man, did I, really, I learned some great theology in catechism. Uh, catechism, which you take in, uh, in junior high. So though the, the family was not really attached, I mean, like, we didn't, I, I would call us a quasi-Christian or a, a heavily Christianized family. Um, so there, though we approached church largely as extracurricular activity, we still had a lot of pride in our local church. It was an old congregation that had been, that has existed since, like, 1870. Um, the church building itself is probably one of the most beautiful build, church buildings I've ever seen beautiful stained glass. I mean, I don't even know if people can do the type of artistry that you see in this church. Lots of hand-carved this and that. Um, and we, we took a lot of pride in it. It was part of our family heritage. You know, later in high school, you know, I had a few, a, a few believing friends. They went to like Baptist or non-denominational churches. There, there weren't a whole lot of, you know, Lutherans or Presbyterians or whatever in my area, it was pretty much, if, if you met a Christian, it, they were probably like, you know, non-denominational or whatever. So eventually, eventually I, I, the Holy Spirit worked upon me, and I finally understood the gospel. I would go to this one church with my friends now and then, and eventually I, I became convinced, you know what, I, I ought to be baptized, and I was like, oh no, this is going to cause some familial strife. Like, I was, I was pretty, pretty stressed out. So, I mean, I think by the time I came around that I should probably be baptized, I was like 21 or something like that. So, I did what any reasonable 21-year-old would do. I waited until four hours before the baptism service to tell anyone in my family. I, I was just like, I just got it. My mom cried because I was baptized as a baby. And doesn't that mean anything to me? 
Uh, my brother suggested that I was joining a cult. And uh, they just took, I knew they were going to take this reaction of sort of aligning yourself with a, a different tradition, you know, to heart. And I mean, to my mom's credit, she went. To my dad's credit, he went. And then two to three years later, my, my brother, my brother was also baptized. So why this story? Well, and I, I realized that my family was going to take my actions as a dismissal of our family heritage. Uh, we, were, we were not even that devout, even. Well, I, at least my siblings, we were not that devout. But in the passage today, we are going to see Jewish Christians wrestling with their ancient tradition, their family spiritual heritage. That is really old, way older than 150 years. So how much more inner turmoil will these Jewish Christians have about deviating from tradition? So uh, we're going to be in Acts 15 today. Um, Acts is right after the book of John, but it's odd to sort of preach on a, on a book where we're just sort of dropping you right in the middle of, of a book, like right in the middle. No context, so I'm going to have to give you some context. And what is more, not only do you have very little context for this passage, it's, it's one of the more complicated passages um, in, in the book of Acts. So, I mean, you've got to pay attention today, all right? Say yes, Dr. Marco. Yes, that's what my children call me. Um, but here, here's, here's sort of what's going on in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch after their first missionary journey. They're pumped. They're excited. They're telling everyone what happened. And they decide to stay there for a bit before going on their next missionary journey. So this is where we're going to pick up in Acts 15, 1 through 21. I'm going to read through this passage. I'm going to watch the time better. And um, I will probably read through this passage once, but then I will, uh, you know, read through it slowly at other times too. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to this custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after, they had been, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, 
having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through, through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that, had, that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the, the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So, that's the passage we're going through. And here are the three questions that will guide our exploration of the text. Um, first, hadn't the apostles already figured this out? In other words, what is the background? Second, why would Peter, Barnabas, and especially Paul, go to a council to discuss and debate something they already knew? I mean, it's, it's not like jumping in a car, like, this is going to be a major traveling situation. I mean, no, no, no small expense. Three, is James being wishy-washy? Now, that's a technical theological term, believe it or not. That means, eh. So, that's as, bet, as, bet, as good as the jokes are going to get, so. This text is hard, so I've got to concentrate more. Um, yeah, so first question, what is the background to all this? And this is where you're really going to have to pay attention, or you're just going to be hopelessly lost. So, so I'm going to, to, to sort of give you the background, I have to do, we have to look at three swaths of Scripture. One, uh, the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10 through 11, first swath. Second swath, the Apostle Paul through Acts 11 through 14. And then finally, we're going to look just briefly at Galatians 2, where Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul have a confrontation. Right? That's what we're going to do. So Acts 10. Acts 10, you've, you're probably familiar with this passage, hopefully. Uh, Paul is on the top of a house, and he has this vision, and these, this sheet, white sheet comes down, and they're animals, and God says, kill and eat. Kill and eat. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Huh? Hmm? One person nodded their head. 
I'm just going to talk to that person from now on. Um, but the, the basic message is that what God has made clean, do not call common. That's what God tells Paul. Or Peter. Peter. He is subsequently brought to the household of Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, who is spoken well, by, well of by the uh, Jewish nation. Peter delivers the gospel message of Jesus Christ to Cornelius and his people, and in so doing, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. This is very important. The Holy Spirit descended upon the Jewish apostles at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They descended upon the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, sort of like a Samaritan Pentecost. And now here in Acts chapter we're, we're at 10. Acts chapter 10, he descends upon the Gentile believers, like a Gentile Pentecost. And this is, this is crucial. He reports back to Jerusalem that the Gentiles also received the word of God and also received the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? Well, some people immediately, the, the so-called circumcision party, accuses him of eating eating with Gentiles. But Peter gives them the entire account, and they celebrate. So it seems like problem solved. Well, we're going to see it's, it wasn't exactly solved. Now, to the second swath of Scripture. Uh, Paul in Acts chapter 11 through 14. Uh, the church of Antioch um, sort of was born out of the persecution of Stephen. Some made their way to Antioch and preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a great number believed. Jerusalem hears of this, that there's a great number of believers in Antioch, and they send one of their own, Barnabas, to Antioch. He, for some reason, goes and gets Paul and brings him to Antioch with them. And then in, in Acts chapter 13, Antioch becomes the official sending church of Paul and Barnabas. They go through their first missionary journey. And then towards the end of Acts 14, we have the account of Paul and Barnabas returning from their first missionary journey. Um, and it is this time, it is this time when Paul and Barnabas have returned from, from their first missionary journey in Acts 14, towards the end of Acts 14, leading up to Acts 15, is where many scholars today think the showdown between Peter and Paul in Galatians 2, 11 through 14 occurred. Okay? Are we tracking with me? Can I get an amen? Whatever. <sighs> I'm just kidding. All right. Here's 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul. This is Paul talking. When, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And right after, in the letter, Paul goes into his great exposition of what is justification through faith and not works, not circumcision, etc. So, um, as we're going to see, you know, as we have seen, and as we're going to see, uh, Peter, Peter does take the word seriously. He does take the word seriously. Both Peter and Paul take God's revelation to them as authoritative. Peter did slip up a little bit. But they do, as we're going to see, they both take it as authoritative. Both their personal revelation given to them. You know, Paul has revelation given to him directly from Jesus Christ. And they both take the Old Testament as revelation. And we should follow in their stead. Scripture is our highest authority. And as you're going to see, the Jerusalem Council also take Scripture as their highest authority as well. So, in terms of sort of like, how do we apply, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be, this is just the first clause of a longer sentence. But let's just apply this a little bit. You know, what does it mean for Scripture to be our highest authority? Well, one, we do not take Scripture as our highest authority because it is reasonable or widely acceptable. We don't. We take, our, we take Scripture as our primary authority because God said it, and the Holy Spirit convicts us that this is truth. You must be, and you've heard me here that say this before, this is like one of my shticks. You must be prepared, Christians ought to be prepared to approach Scripture being, or sorry, Christians should approach Scripture being prepared to have what you think of as moral or reasonable overturned. Christians should approach Scripture being prepared to have what he or she thinks of as moral um, or reasonable overturned. So let me give you a little for instance. Um, when I was, a, I was a, uh, a youth pastor and a young adult pastor for the first two years of my time in ministry, and I had a college and career class, and I had um, um, a lot of, you know, there, there, was, a, there was a group of um, uh, very intelligent, uh, driven, you know, very gifted women in the group. In fact, I mean, they, they clearly, I mean, they just sort of like uh, were, they just sort of, out, they clearly outshined the guys in terms of learning and understanding and just sort of, you know, their intentionality. And they kept asking me, are there any, can, can women be pastors? Can women be pastors? And I was like, and they just kept asking this. And I was pretty sure that, my, my, um, that I was going to say the following. I was pretty sure that, yes, whenever possible, try to make males pastors whenever feasible. And in other instances, women can be the pastors. Like, I was pretty sure that was how it was going to be. I was really into C.S. Lewis, and I had some really good philosophical arguments to this, like natural law and things like that. And then before that, you know, the Friday before, I was like, I should probably actually look at what the Bible says about that 
And that was a good lesson for me. As I went into 1 Timothy 2 through 3, and I started reading in the afternoon, and I was there till late at night. And I remember, like, I just could not get around, who was it? I think it was Douglas Moo. Had an argument who said that the prohibition, um, the prohibition for elders being male, you know, while it might not make sense to us completely, uh, it might not make sense to us regardless. It can't, just be, it can't just be a passage for the Ephesian church to which Paul was reading because Paul um, links some of the, a particular prohibition into the Genesis 2 through 3 narrative, which is not only for the Ephesian church. So that was one of the, the days where I was like, okay, doesn't seem exactly reasonable to me, but, you know, God said it, my hands are tied. That also, that day also helped me stop looking at pastor or elder as the only important role in the church, though, too. There are tons of other ones. And while we may, we may put certain prohibitions, this has nothing to do with difference of, differences of worth, differences of the image of God. Um, it's just one of these things that, whether it makes sense to you or not, God said it. Um, next question, next major question. Why would Peter, Barnabas, and especially Paul go to a council to discuss and debate something they already knew? Why would they do that? Um, let's see here. Let me, let me, let me read this just real quick, real quick. 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension to debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who had belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after that, um, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples and neither, that neither our fa fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So the debate... In Acts 15, 1, you have the so-called Judaizers, the circumcision party. 
who said, you better get them Gentile Christians circumcised. Right? Then you have in the council a group collectively called the Pharisees who say something similar. Um, they say it was necessary to circumcise them, the Gentile believers, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Are these the same party? I mean, they're clearly connected. Are they the same people? We, I don't know. But they have some sort of the, uh, the same gist. Peter argues that there are no Judaistic preconditions or post-conditions required for salvation. The Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles just as he was the Jews. And this was irrespective of circumcision. But he points out in verse 11 that even the Jewish Christians are not saved to any preconditions or post-conditions. This is really important. He writes, but, or he said, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And in, this, in the debate, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul uh, relay their experiences. Now, before we go on to the rest of the debate, I just want to pause and just talk about the apostolic character real quick. Peter, who was just chastised for slipping up and falling into old habits, he goes to the council and he does not let his ego get in the way of truth. And he's basically Peter's right. I'm sorry, he's Paul's right. Paul, likewise, um, he doesn't let his ego get in the way when they ask Barnabas to speak before him. What is more, Antioch, and this is probably, this is, I think this is a very important point for us to consider, Antioch was not necessarily sending delegates to Jerusalem because they doubted Paul and Barnabas' theology. Most charitably, they wanted to go the extra mile to maintain truth and unity among the churches. Um, This is a bit of a side note, but F.F. Bruce, a well-known New Testament scholar, he notes that, you know, Paul talks about the food prohibitions elsewhere in the New Testament, and never once does he bring the Jerusalem council in defense of his argument. Paul knows what he knows. Um, let's look at 13 through 17. After they finish speaking, James, this is James, the brother of Jesus, right, um, James, the brother of Jesus, not one of the original apostles. Uh, it's pretty clear in early on in the church that he had considerable weight. Um, it's, it's interesting that the Roman Catholics often, you know, sort of identify Peter as what we would in, in, in consider the first pope. But it's, it's interesting because James seems to be the, um, he seems to be the chief among chiefs, if there is one, if there is one. I'm not advocating popes. Don't come away from that little comment thinking that. It's amazing what 
students in classes will hear sometimes, like. So after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God visited, first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James does not simply rely on Peter's testimony. He sees that Peter's testimony comports with Old Testament prophecy, and thus he gives his suggestion. And here's a few important observations on the council as a whole. We had observations on the apostolic character, now we're looking at the character of the council. Everyone has their say in an orderly fashion. There does not seem to be an all-church vote that occurs, and that doesn't really bring unity in reality. But they patiently come to agreement. One author has said this. One author has said this. Give a church a rule, and you guide them for a day. Teach a church to think, and you guide them for a life. So scripture is our highest authority, but we ought to exert ourselves to reach truth and maintain unity. So on the one hand, churches must maintain truth but should also be watchful how they go about doing it. Putting things, to, putting things to a vote without much context, without much discussion, is potentially dangerous or growth-inhibiting. Education, edification, and hard discussions must be had. So back to my little story when I was, when I was a pastor talking about... Um, uh, whether women can be pastors or not. Um, we did not lose one of those ladies. And I don't think it's because I was a brilliant strategist. Now, I was a... I matured quite slowly over the years. <laughs> as my wife can attest. And I mean, I just sort of like... I mean, the, the one thing that kept them is that we all, like, looked through the text, and we argued, and we debated, and sort of, like, there was, people came to conclusions on their own, and it was in the context of love and affirmation, and it was good. I don't think any of us were really, like, totally thrilled and happy, but at the end, there was that, that, res that godly respect there, and, the, and again, that was, that was sort of lucky on my part, because, again, not a brilliant strategist was I. On the other hand, we must engage in obeying Scripture and thus, for instance, following through the hard task of church discipline instead of shying away from it because it makes people uncomfortable. Uh, I, just This passage caused me to reflect on just my own time here at Forest Hills, and I remember, you know, being, I think we were, been married for two years, maybe, and we came to, we came to Forest Hills, there's a lot of reasons we stayed, wonderful people here, wonderful pastors, um, doctrinally sound, which is important for everyone, but also, like, 
in, 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 the, in, in terms of enlightened self-interest, I knew, I recognized that this church body would take care of my family if something were to happen to me. I also knew this, like, there were no, we were not having any problems, but I also knew that this was the type of body that would exact discipline and would work hard if either one of us were to start to stray from our marital vows. That's important. There's accountability there. And I've seen that. Some people don't... Some people are not happy when, the, when some of this discipline, um, these discipline issues do arise publicly in the church, but it's important. And my hat's off to um, Craig and Jeff for just the way they've, they've gone about this. There's teaching involved, there's humility, but there is, there is accountability there and bringing to account. And I think that's powerful. It's always done with, with humility and with the explanation of Scripture. So last but not least, the question, is James being wishy-washy? Verse 19, Therefore, and this is James speaking, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's a few observations from James's uh, quotation here. I do not think James is being wishy-washy. He has ruled against the circumcision party, who seem to be problematic and rather numerous. They're a constant thorn in in Paul's side. I mean, it seems like throughout his entire ministry. Though making a strong theological statement and saying the circumcision party is wrong, he thinks that they should request, that the council should request, that the Gentile believers do not do things that unnecessarily offend the Jewish believers, unbelievers. Why? Well, one, it sort of makes the living of the Jerusalem church hard if they connect the Christians with, you know, if if they're just known for non-circumcision and just throwing the law of Moses out. If that's just what they're become known for, that's not helpful for the Jerusalem church. What is more, you don't want to break um, a potential inroad with table fellowship with Jewish unbelievers. So, and here's a little principle that's not going to be up there, but we can, in the church, we cannot make unbiblical mandates, but we can request that our people not unnecessarily hinder the hearing of the gospel. And I think that's what James is doing here. We're not telling you that you have to do this or that to be saved. Uh, We don't have it. But we're just requesting that you don't do things that hinder the promulgation of the gospel or the advancement of the gospel. So scripture, pay attention here because this is going to take a minute. This is a long sentence. Scripture is our highest authority, 
but we ought to exert ourselves to reach truth and maintain unity without sacrificing the former for the latter and the latter for that which is not actually revealed truth. In other words, scriptures are high authority, but we ought to exert ourselves to reach truth and maintain unity without sacrificing truth for unity and sacrificing unity for what is actually not revealed truth. Does that make sense? Hmm? All right. Amen. So the application of this is a little bit difficult. Um, a, a nearby church that I had the pleasure of preaching at um, a little bit ago, um, they, they say this in their, on, their, on their website. Because when you go somewhere, you probably ought to look at their website and one, know if you should be preaching there, and then two, like how not to offend them um, unnecessarily. God calls believers to be united in their faith, in their pursuit of Christ, and in their acceptance of all those whom God has accepted. And they write this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. I think that's good. I think that's good in principle, but the difficulty is what is distinguishing between what is essentials and non-essentials. I mean, that's sticky. Um... I know of another church who did not sacrifice unity for what was actually personal preference. This church did not sacrifice unity for what was, per, what was personal preference. This church was about to have its doors shut. Um, another uh, church had jumped in the mix, was trying to help them along found the ideal person for this church. Wonderful, wonderful, godly man. And everything was about to go smooth. This guy was about to become um, installed as the first pastor. And then two, two of the le- leaders of the church asked, asked the, this candidate, what are you, what's your position on alcohol? And he said, I'm not a drinker myself, but... I don't think there's any actual biblical prohibition of consuming it appropriately. Well, this caused a ruckus. This installation was on a knife's edge. But in the end, these godly older leaders recognized that the biblical defense for their stance wasn't very solid. It was really probably personal preference. Um, they capitulated, and that man was installed, and now that church is, is thriving and is now a, is becoming a, a brighter and brighter light for that church, or for that community, rather. Now, on the other end, and I could probably name a number of denominations. I did name them earlier, but in sake of interest, we'll just, you know of denominations who have sacrificed truth for unity. And how did they get there? I mean, you, you, know, you probably know some of these denominations. They continue to endure more and more theological and moral liberalism for the sake of unity. New Testament scholar Joel Green writes this. 
Progressive morality and progressive thinking often go hand in hand with progressive deafness to the voice of God. What these denominations have done, some of them, they've taken what they think are clear biblical um, principles like love, inclusion, tolerance, etc., as their guiding authority over the Bible, such that they actually take the voice of God away from the teaching of what is godly love, what is godly inclusion, what is godly tolerance. So in these denominations, what we've seen is the true believers mostly will leave. Some will go down with the ship. And for the most part, you'll have a group of self-congratulating pagans who like, ha- like the idea of being religious. So scripture is our highest authority, but we ought to exert ourselves in our efforts with others to reach truth, and maintain unity in doctrinal and ecclesiastical matters without sacrificing um, the truth for unity and the unity for that which is not actually revealed truth.